Hey, happy summer. I'm Lynn Kitchens. I'm so glad to be with you. And look at all of you. How fun. Thanks for coming out on this kind of weird night. I left our house in Alito and the sun was out and there was a rainbow. And in two minutes, I was like in a monsoon trying to stay, <laughs> stay on the road. It was scary. And then I got here and it's like nothing. This is crazy. And I could not find one place to park in the garage. Everybody beat me to it. Glad we can keep studying God's Word over the summer. If you didn't get through your questions, no worries. We're going to cover everything that you might have missed. And I know there's one thing you discovered at your table tonight. Never name a baby Jezebel. <laughs> Never. <laughs> if our study's called The Good, The Bad, and The Beautiful, we all figured out that Jezebel's in the bad camp. Uh, it's interesting to me how everyone still recognizes her name today. When I would say to people, I'm teaching on Jezebel, they'd be like, <laughs> It's so funny. I, you all remember Rod Stewart's song? He had a line in it of a fortune teller woman, you're a mean old Jezebel. And, and I started reading all these quotes of, um, you know, millennials today talking about being in a bar and some woman came in all painted up, flirting around, and they're saying, she's just a Jezebel. <laughs> I'm just shocked how we all, you know, remember who she is. 2,500 years have gone by, and we still recognize her name and how bad she was, and that tells us something. She was a woman of influence. She influenced her husband, she influenced her family, she influenced a nation, and that's one thing we have in common with her. We are influencers. Whether we know it or not, we live our lives influencing other people. You probably heard the story of the young wife who loved her grandmother's pot roast, so she wanted to make the pot roast, so she learned from her grandmother, you cut off each end of the pot roast before you cook it. One day she said to her mom, why is that important to do when you're making a pot roast? And her mom said, Grandma only had one pot. It wouldn't fit in any of her pots. <laughs> she had to cut off each end. Even the grandmother was influencing her granddaughter on how to make a pot roast. Okay, so that's kind of a harmless influence. We have the potential, though, to influence people to the good and the beautiful or the bad like Jezebel. So I want to tonight look at Jezebel's life. She gives us a wonderful blueprint of what not to do. You know, she gives us a blueprint of the bad so we know how to make good choices so we don't become anything like her. You know, God equips us to live a life that's going to influence people for good. Jesus said, I came to give you life and life more abundantly. So he gives us ways to do that. So we can have rich, wonderful lives that help the people and influence them around us. When we are with our Savior in heaven, don't you want to look down and see that you left fingerprints of all things that are good and beautiful with the help of God? We can do that. And we can influence other women along the way and other people and our children, etc. So here's our first bad point that we're going to talk about on Jezebel. 
we recognize that her loyalty lay in everything that was untrue. She loved what was false. We've been looking at a period in Israel's history, Kathy talked about this last week, when Israel was split into two kingdoms. So you have one kingdom that has two tribes, um, Benjamin and the tribe of Judah, Judah and Benjamin. And then you have, they're called Judah, and then you have this other part that was split called Israel, and it had the other tribes of Israel. And King Ahab was the king of the tribe of Israel, and he was described as the king who did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who went before him. So during the reign of Ahab, we witness the greatest decay of Israel's spiritual life under his leadership. And a big part of that reason was the wife he chose named Jezebel. And the verse about him choosing her lets us know it's written in a way where he didn't have to choose her. This was his pick. Look at 1 Kings 16, verse 31. And it's as if it had been a light thing for Ahab to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. So Ahab chose this pagan princess who would promote her depraved cult of Baal worship as the exclusive religion of Israel. God spoke about what he despised of Jezebel even 500 years later. He meets with John, the disciple, and he's dictating and speaking the book of Revelation to him. And he's talking about a woman in the early church. And look what he says. Look on your verse sheet, Revelation 2. God says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food, sacrifice to idols. So Jezebel and her name was the symbol of the evils of false religion. She led God's people into idolatry and sexual immorality thought it was interesting, her father's name was Ethbaal, meaning Baal is alive. And that's who she became, someone who believed that lie, that Baal is alive and deserves to be worshipped. Baal means lord or husband or owner. He was worshipped as the storm god, the god of rain, the god of sun, the fertility god, and they believed Baal was responsible for the success of their crops. And the worship of Baal had already infiltrated into Israel before Ahab came on the scene. But did you read when I just read that, did you see what he did? He gave it an official sanction, Baal worship, an official sanction by building a temple for him in the capital of Israel. When your king does that and makes a statement that this is our God, this is who we are. 
He also made an Asherah, and those were poles that were carved into idols that was the female counterpart of Baal. So you have a male and a female false god growing in influence in Israel. Here's what I read in 1 Kings 21. Let me just read it. There was none who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. She was holding his hands, encouraging him in all these evil pursuits. She made it her aim to wipe out the name of Yahweh, the true God, replace it with the name of Baal, a God that was no God at all. And this is where sometimes I use this illustration about Lost in Space. Some of you remember that old show. It's on again in Netflix. (laughs) Doesn't look anything like the old one. But you remember when danger came around, that robot would throw his arms, danger, danger. I see that all through her stories. So this is the first place that I see it. We can hear the robot's voice when we think about the fact that Jezebel loved lies. There's a danger for us to fall into that camp without even knowing knowing it. We have the ability to influence others, to get on a path to nowhere good when we hold on to things that aren't really true. We can be influencing others to follow a path that is not a godly one, a false one. It could be a worldview that we have. It could be a spiritual view that's wrong, like telling your friend in sin, well, God just wants you to be happy. That's false. Or we just have to do a lot of good things and then we'll get to heaven. That's false. Or God doesn't care what we do. It's called grace. Just live how you want. That's false. Those are some of the things we might embrace that we set people on the wrong path. The worship of things or money or ideas or activities that are no gods at all. And these are the beliefs that enslave us. And Jesus said, you know, it's the truth that sets you free. Look what he says in John 8. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So here's the positive side of this. When we are obedient to God, we can influence others out of darkness and into light because when we are following truth, when we are following Jesus, we will attract people that are enslaved to the false. They'll see that truth. They'll see that light. And they'll want to be influenced and come to him and come to know what it is we know that they don't. This leads us into another flaw of Jezebel that connects to this one. Jezebel hated the truth. Hated it. So since Israel was growing in this allegiance to Baal and that he was the God they believed sent rain for their crops, God chose to stop the rain. He wanted to demonstrate, I'm in control of the rain. Not this false God. I am Yahweh. I am the only true God. 
And this is when Elijah the prophet comes on the scene. What a wonderful prophet. Guess what his name means? Yahweh is my God. I love that. So he informs Ahab of Israel's sins and also of God's plan. God had warned Israel many years earlier that he would hold back the rain if they chose idolatry over him. Look on your verse sheet at Deuteronomy 11. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. He will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So at this point in the story, three years of drought. And God sends Ahab, uh, sends Elijah to tell Ahab that this drought would be ending. So when we come in on this scene, Ahab has his servant Obadiah, and they are searching and wandering around the land, looking for a few blades of grass still growing so they could feed their animals. And this is when Elijah enters the scene. And we're going to learn more about Jezebel from this part of the story. So look at 1 Kings 18, verse 2. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Look over at verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I haven't troubled Israel. You have, and your father's house. Because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 400 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Jezebel, she was the queen of killing all that was true and honoring all that was not true. Under her command, prophets of the true God died, and false prophets were revered. This picture of 850 false prophets being invited to Jezebel's table, which would also mean just being invited into fellowship with her, having that privilege of being around royalty, at the same time killing all the real prophets or they were hidden in caves by Obadiah. Don't you like Obadiah? Okay, think about it. He is living in a house of evil, and yet he is loyal and loves the one true God. I love that. And the task he had of keeping 100 prophets of God alive in a three-year drought, hidden in a cave, that was not an easy thing to do. So Ahab and the prophets of Baal and Elijah headed to Mount Carmel to discern what was true, Yahweh or Baal. And then Elijah, I love this, he planned for the false prophets in Ahab to have all the advantages for this contest. First of all, he says, we're going to go to Mount Carmel. 
And they kind of were doing this behind the scenes. It's the dwelling place of Baal. That was the sacred dwelling place of Baal. And that's why Elijah chose it. He's thinking, oh, well, if Baal's a god, surely he'd easily win a contest on this mountain. It's his home. Imagine this scene. These are beautiful, rolling, low green mountains in Israel. Um, Beautiful green valleys. You can see the Mediterranean Sea in the distance. And you'd be watching hundreds if not thousands of robed people from Israel coming up eagerly talking, climbing up that mountain to see what's going to happen here. And then Elijah stands up in the middle of them and yells out, How long will you keep limping between two gods? How long? Two different opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal's God, follow him. Follow what is true. And it was like crickets on the mountain. Nobody saying a word. Because they knew Elijah was totally right. Their loyalty went back and forth. They had lost the ability and I think the desire to know what was true. Then we see another advantage Eliza gives the false prophets. He says, I'm just one prophet representing Yahweh, you have hundreds of Baal prophets. Not good odds, humanly speaking. And then he tells them, let's prepare a bull for sacrifice. We're going to make an altar here. And then we'll get the bull all prepared. And then we'll call down for the one true God to burn this sacrifice up. And the people say, that sounds good. That's good to us. You know why? Another advantage for them because they believed Baal's a god of lightning. He's, this is his house. He does the lightning. We got this thing in the bag. And then Elijah says, okay, you call on your God. I'll call on mine. You go first. And they did. And they did. And they did. And they did. All morning until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They cried out. They danced. They chanted. And they cut themselves, calling on Baal. Look at chapter 18, verse 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself, which actually means using a bathroom. Or he's on a journey, which they used to believe Baal did sometimes. Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. It was chaos. It was craziness. It was begging. It was bleeding. It was crying. Then Elijah looked at the people and said, come close to me. And then he took an altar that had been there for the Lord many years before that was in disrepair. And he rebuilt that altar before all of Israel. And while they were watching, he took 12 stones and put them on the altar. And here's what he was saying. 
you may be divided as a nation, but in God, we have the same purpose. We still have the same God. We still have the same covenant. We still have the same destiny. That's who Israel is. Then he built a trench around the altar, and he poured water over the sacrifice, over the wood, into the trench, three times filling it, which they would see as this is another disadvantage for Elijah here. Water covering, sitting on it, his sacrifice. And around 3 o'clock, when the evening sacrifice would be given, Elijah called on the true God. Let's look at that, verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you're God in Israel, that I'm your servant. I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and you have turned their hearts back. And immediately the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Wow. The mountain became a mountain of truth. The chanting on the mountain changed. You could hear echoing down into the valleys, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What wonderful words. They made their way down the mountain into the ears of Jezebel, and she hated those words hated what was true, ignored the obvious truth on that mountain, ignored the power of God that was displayed on that mountain. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword, and Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Okay, think about this. Did Elijah show a lot of fear on the mountain? And yet these words from Jezebel scared him? It sort of lets you know about Jezebel. Pretty scary. And that's a whole nother story. You'll have to read the rest of that later. By killing Elijah, Jezebel's hoping to kill what is true. What is truth? How in the world could she ignore the miracle on that mountain? And here's the answer. Because she wanted to. She had her own belief. And it didn't matter what anyone else Proved to her she was hanging on to her agenda. Jezebel chose to despise the mountain of truth that was miraculous on Mount Carmel. And I can hear that robot from Lost in Space here. Danger. Danger because sometimes we are tempted to ignore mountains of truth 
that are before us. Answer prayers. God's faithfulness. His love for us. His power. Our need for him. Because maybe at times he feels distant and unloving and powerless. But here's the truth. The God that came down on Mount Carmel comes down into our lives every single day. Your life and your life and my life. And that's the reality. And we have to embrace that what God's word says about God is true, even when sometimes it's hard to believe. Because things are unfair. We suffer loss. Things don't go our way. But we can shed light on what is false by staying committed to what is true. You know, many, many years ago, I was like 22 years old. So it was just a few years ago, really. <laughs> I went to a lunch with a traveling minister's wife and an older elder's wife from a different church many years ago. And we were eating, and the younger uh, woman that had small children was telling us at lunch that she doesn't allow her children to pray because she doesn't know if they're going to choose God or not yet till they're older. Now, I was young, but even I was smart enough to think, that sounds really stupid. <laughs> but I wasn't about to say that out loud. I love it that the elder's wife looked at her and said, your job is to teach truth to your children. Not to wait for them to try to find it all out for themselves. If you let them pray, they're learning the truth that there's a God and that he loves them and he listens to them. And I was just kind of sitting there and uh, it was great. I loved it because truth was being spoken. And I'm hoping that young woman took that advice and went home and changed her agenda that she had. You know, the world's filled with a lot of strange philosophies, stranger than that. But if we hate those lies, we influence others to what is true. Look at 1 John 2. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So choosing to believe God, staying committed to that, sets us on this mountain of truth, and people can see it. That's how they learn who God is. We get to influence people that way. What a privilege. Okay, we get another closer look at Jezebel when one day she finds her husband pouting, Laying on his bed with his head against the wall. First Kings 21. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house. I'll give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value and money. Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. 
And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel's wife came to him and said, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite. (laughs) And I said to him, Give me your vineyard for money or else I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I won't give you the vineyard. (laughs) And Jezebel's wife said to him, Don't you govern Israel? Arise, eat bread, let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So when Nahab wasn't at the capital in Samaria, he had a second palace here in Jezreel. And that night he had vegetables on his mind. And he's looking out the window. He sees this wonderful vineyard at Naboth's. And he wants it, but Naboth refuses. And this is why he refused. He was a God-fearing man, and he knew if he gave up his ancestral property, he was disregarding the law of God. God had a law about not doing that. He had forbidden families to surrender ownership of family lands permanently. God owned the land of Israel. He had plans for it. It wasn't Naboth's to give away. And so when Jezebel walked into the master bedroom that day and she found her child's husband sulking in his bed and refusing to eat, it was incredible to Jezebel that Ahab didn't just take it, just abuse his power and just take it. So she created a plan so Ahab could get it, get what he wanted, and Ahab let her plan away. I will give you the vineyards of Naboth. Leave it to me. Here's what she did. Knowing Israel's laws, Jezebel executed a plan to kill the innocent and bless the guilty. First, she proclaimed a fast. In Israel, she knew that you could have an assembly for solemn fasting, and what it meant was that you knew there was a disaster coming to Israel because of someone's sin. And if you had a solemn fast, you could figure it out, and then God would avert the disaster that was coming. So this is the first thing she does. She's going to call this fast. By doing this, she would raise suspicions right off the bat of who's guilty of sin amongst us. Then she'd plan for Naboth to be the one guilty of the sun the sins around them, but she also knows that under Mosaic law, you needed two witnesses to accuse someone of sin. So she called the royal scribe, he sat down, he opened up a new scroll, she dictated her desire for Naboth to be falsely accused of cursing God and the king. A grave sin for an Israelite, and Jezebel knew it. So she writes, has her scroll man write, throw a fast, bring two worthless men to seat next to Naboth, let them accuse him of this blasphemy, then take Naboth out and stone him to death, which she knew was Israel's punishment for cursing God. Then she got the scroll, she rolled it up, she sealed it with the king's official seal, making this an official royal mandate, and she had it delivered to the elders and the nobles in Naboth's city. According to Mosaic law, a guilty party was to be stoned outside of the city, 
And so after the assembly, everything Jezebel planned happened. And they led innocent Naboth out to a field and stoned him and killed him. And 2 Kings tells us, guess who they brought with him? All of Naboth's sons. And they stoned and killed them as well. So none of them could rise up and say, I have a right to this inheritance, which was another law of Israel. That couldn't happen anymore. So Jezebel's abuse of power took place exactly as she planned, and she and Ahab were pleased, but God was not pleased. God declared Ahab and Jezebel guilty of manipulating his laws and leading Israel into sin. Look at 1 Kings 21, verse 17. So the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who's in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, where he's gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Look at verse 22. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for because you have made Israel, oh, for the anger to which you provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of the Jezebel the Lord, he said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. So with these pronouncements, Ahab would be faced with the reality There is a power greater than your kingly power. You can manipulate all you want, but God's will will be done. This was what he heard. And I heard here also danger. Danger for us because we possess some power on this earth. As women of the church and and women that have a workplace and women that might have families and people in their lives, we all have some kind of power, and we need to yield them to God for God's will so others will be blessed. We don't want to manipulate them for our own will to be accomplished. And that's why God places different authorities and people on earth so his will will be done. So his plans will be accomplished. So a king who submits to God's plans over his own, that's a good king. A woman who submits to God's plans over her own, that's a good woman. When we do that, we influence others into the blessings of God. When we manipulate our own will over God's will, it causes a ripple of conflicts in people's lives. It's reminded me of years, years ago, gosh, 25 years ago, uh, someone was in our home that we didn't really know, and uh, she tripped in our bedroom. We had this one little step down. I had a carpeted bedroom. She fell down to her knees and got up and did the rest of her time in our home. And uh, I watched her walk down 20 stairs to get to her car. And a year later, we're sued for her injuries in our home which just shocked us. So Ted went to the deposition, but she didn't know he was in there, and he heard her tell one lie after another. Not a thing she said was true about our home or what happened. 
or any of that. Well, later she realized Ted was in there, so she said, hey, I don't want your money. I want your insurance company's money. We just have a lot of bills right now. My husband's not doing well. And uh, she just used her lies. She manipulated the situation. And then our lawyer came up to us and said, and this is why your insurance cost so much. People like her that manipulate the system. And she got her money, even though none of it was true. That's the ripple effect when we choose to manipulate something so our will is done. Look at what Philippians 2 says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Okay, Jezebel chose darkness. I'm going to catch you up on Ahab. In our story, Ahab has now died in battle. He's in a battle against Syria. He's struck by an arrow. So let's see what happens next. Chapter 22, verse 37. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Ah, horrible. Not a pretty picture at all. Here's the only good point in Ahab. When the Naboth judgment came upon him, he did repent for a while before the Lord. So God lets him be buried here. But his prediction that dogs would lick up his blood came true. He died connected to prostitutes because he was a spiritual harlot, chasing after false gods and not being faithful to the true God. So what influence did he and his wife have on their son Ahaziah, the new king? I guess we could all guess. (laughs) Before we read about that, I want us to realize something else about another dark thing about Jezebel during her reign as queen. You're going to hear in a minute the words of Jehu. He was someone that became king of Israel, and he uses these words when someone asks him about peace in Israel. What peace can there be in Israel with the whorings and the sorceries of Jezebel? There is no peace in Israel because of this. The whorings were her pursuit of other gods, but the other pursuit was that she sought information from demonic forces, and she lured Israel to do the same. That's what Jehu was saying here. How can there be peace when Jezebel is influencing people to seek the face of Satan rather than the face of our God? There is no peace. Her idolatry and her witchcraft had ruined Israel's peace. And I'm sure it added to the pitiful character of her son, Ahaziah. Let's look at him now. Verse 51 in chapter 22. 
Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. What's our danger here? Our danger is sometimes we seek everybody but God for guidance. It's so easy just to put our reliance on a person or a book or something we heard or saw, and that way we're seeking the wrong faces, the wrong philosophies, the wrong people. We're to seek the face of God in our lives. Otherwise, the people around us will pay a price. When we choose to seek God's wisdom, we leave an inheritance of peace for the people around us. I can think of times when I listened to someone else and then there were conflicts around me, but when we rest in God's wisdom, there is peace that surrounds the people around us. What a great inheritance for others. Peace. It's better than any kind of money we can leave someone. It's priceless. Look what Psalm 119 says. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. That's what we seek. That's what God plans for us to seek, to bless us. After Ahab's death, Jezebel stuck around for a while to continue to influence Israel in negative ways. But the time for her judgment had come, and so God appointed Jehu to become the next king, the man I was mentioning earlier. But at the time, Jezebel's son, Joram, was Israel's king. It was God's plan that Jehu would overcome King Joram on the very land where Naboth and his sons were killed, just as he had predicted. God's judgments coming true. So let's look at that. You got to turn to 2 Kings 9. Second Kings 9, verse 21. Joram's going to meet Jezebel's son, who's king. Joram said, make ready, and they made ready his chariot. And Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out, each in his chariot, and went to meet Jehu. I'm sorry, I said Joram earlier. Jehu's the good guy here. (laughs) Met him at the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? And then Joram the king reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with its full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders, so the arrow pierced his heart, and he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, take him and throw him on the plot of the ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, 
when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab, his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. So therefore, take him up and throw him on that plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. Wow. Okay. Jehu knew no peace in Israel unless Jezebel's gone and Baal worship ends. Now, she would have heard right after this happened that Jehu killed her son, Joram. So she would be waiting, knowing that Jehu was coming for her. And so he's about to face the inner and the outer evil of this queen, Jezebel. Look at verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. She painted her eyes, adorned her head, and looked out the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who's on my side? Who? Who's tired to death of evil Jezebel? <laughs> Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. Some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Jezebel maintained her arrogance physically and verbally up until the very point where she died. That was her inner and outer evil. She was evil personified as she watched Jehu approaching the gate. She's leaning on a palace windowsill, probably second story, looking out, waiting for him to come around the corner to go through that gate, and he does on his horse, and he's right beneath her there. She has painted her eyes to intimidate and impress Jehu. And back then, they had this black powder, and they'd mix it with oil, and they had these little brushes. They had the first eyeliner. <laughs> and she'd do her eyes all up, and so she would look ominous. She would look intimidating, up sitting in that window, looking down at Jehu. Then she spoke mocking, sarcastic words to him, calling in Zimri, he was a traitorous king who only lived seven days because he was murdered by the next king, who just happened to be Ahab's father. So she's trying to say, this is going to be your fate. You're not going to be around very long. Someone's going to murder you. Below the window on his horse, Jehu looks out. He doesn't even really answer her and calls out, who's on my side? Who? And some evil servants, they, I mean some eunuchs, popped up their heads at the window. And here's what I think is so funny. They don't debate it. They don't discuss it. They don't ask me. They just, we're against her. We're on your side immediately. And when he says, throw her down, they don't even talk about it. They just do it. They hate her. They throw her out the window. And thrown from a window, she falls under Elijah's prophesied judgment from God. Look at verse 34. Then he went in, we're talking about Jehu here, he went in and ate and drank. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And see now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. 
For when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in this territory of Jezreel, so no one can say, this is Jezebel. No one should be able to honor someone like her. So isn't it interesting? Jehu and his men are there. They watch her fall out. Her blood goes everywhere. Then they trample her with their horses. Then they go in to eat and drink. So you realize there's no love lost on either side of the palace wall for Jezebel being gone. And no fruit of anything good or beautiful left behind by Queen Jezebel. In fact, Nothing was left at all but filth, like God had predicted. It was an illustration of the life she had left behind, the dung on the ground. And aren't you glad we have victory in our Lord and Savior? We don't have to leave this world worthless. We don't have to do that. In fact, if we live a life of faith... Our lives won't end at all. Who we were on earth will continue. Look at Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree that keeps growing planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not ever wither. In all that he does, he prospers. What a promise. You know, when we follow God closely, we are leaving good and beautiful things on this earth. And guess what? Unlike Jezebel, who fell down to judgment, one day God's angels will escort us up to heaven, to be with God. But on earth, our faith will continue to reap fruit. What a wonderful truth. With God's guidance, we can be women that influence others into the arms of God. Let me pray. Lord, we give you all praise and glory for this truth. We love you. We know you love us. Give us the strength to follow you, to be committed to you, to know you more and more each day, that we, we may be that mountain of truth in the lives of others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.